Body Bags with Joseph Scott Morgan. You look back on it, and after you've been to college, uh, you realize that it probably wasn't really the most stressful thing that happened in your life. But for many kids that come into college, they, they realize their life is full of stress at that moment. It might be the most they've ever experienced. And how do you relieve yourself from that stress? I don't know. There's any number of ways that college kids go about that. But at the University of Wisconsin, they've kind of got a, a unique area there. And it's a place of beauty. It's actually a, a nature walk. It's called an arboretum. And you can walk through and see all native species of plants. The walkway kind of curves through this forested area. Of course, all the plants are labeled and that sort of thing. And it's beautiful, they say, no matter what time of year you're there. But one morning, the jogger was going through this beautiful nature area at about 6.30 in the morning. And if you can imagine this, this individual looked over along the side of this beautiful nature trail. He saw two individuals, both, with gunshot wounds to their heads. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is Body Bags. Joining me today is Jackie Howard, executive producer of Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. Jackie, I... I I got to tell you, I don't know that I've ever been on a walk and have discovered something of this nature. And, you know, I've been on a lot of walks as a death investigator going through the woods and this sort of thing. But just as a, a random person, can you imagine the shock and the horror? You're out there to start your day off with a, a jog, at, you know, just at the crack of dawn. And you look down and you see two fellow human beings laying alongside the road, apparently slaughtered. It certainly would be a surprise at any time, let alone first thing in the morning where you think you're setting yourself up for the day. A lot of people use that time as they walk to meditate and plan their day. But around 630 in the morning, Dr. Beth Potter and her husband, Robin Carey, were discovered laying on the pathway to the Arboretum. Dr. Beth worked at the University Health Family Center. She was working on covid her husband, Robin, was involved in a lot of physical fitness. They had three children. And the morning that they were found, Robin was dead on the scene. Dr. Potter was transported to a local hospital, and she died there. Dr. Potter was in her pajamas. Her husband was only in his underwear. So given that nature, it would seem they were forced to leave their home. You bet. I don't know if I mentioned this, but the date was March 30th. Jackie, let me ask you a question. You ever been to Wisconsin in March? I've never been to Wisconsin. Oh, well, you're missing a treat because I got to tell you, Wisconsin's one of my favorite states. It's absolutely gorgeous. But let me tell you something else about March in Wisconsin. It can be brutal. And the particular morning when they were found, 
the overnight temps had been in the 30s, which I guess by Wisconsin standards at that time of year, even though you're, you know, you're in the first part of spring, that's still, that that's, that's kind of warmer than normal, but it's not a location. You know, you wouldn't be out in the elements like this of your own volition. Robin, he was, he was only dressed in underwear. I mean, can you imagine that? That and that's a good investigative pickup on your part, Jackie, because when you, you know, you think about contextually when you look at a body at a scene, particularly an outdoor scene, you think, well, are they clothed appropriately? You know, to the circumstances, and of course, in this case, they weren't. He, he's in his underwear. I can't imagine any circumstance under which I would leave my home dressed like that or uh, absent other clothing at that time of year in those kind of temperatures. And then you think about his wife. She was found there in just her PJs alongside that pathway. And the way they've kind of described the area where they they were found is kind of a a ditch. It doesn't sound like a real deep ditch. It just sounds like a, a little kind of a wash, if you will, where, where water just kind of gently drains away through this area. And you begin to think as an investigator, what would bring two people to this location almost two miles away from their home, which is, you know, driven by car, it's not that far, but you know that they, they probably didn't walk and their car is nowhere to be seen. How did, in fact, they wind up there? And, and that probably initially, you know, when you're coming into it cold as an investigator, that's going to be the biggest question, I think. And you have to ask that question and really seek that answer out because I think therein is, you know, is going to rest the genesis for the rest of this case. Robin Carey was dead on the scene, but again, Beth Potter was taken to a local hospital. Do we know if Carey died because of the gunshot wound or was it exacerbated from the cold temperatures and hypothermia? Again, he was only dressed in underwear. Yeah, well, cold temperatures didn't help. But let me tell you, this injury that Robin Carey sustained is absolutely lethal. There were a lot of clues at the scene relative to that that the police really, you know, gave a lot of thought to. In addition to the absence of warm clothing, he was essentially shot in the back of the head, but just off to the left, right behind his left ear, if you will. And when that projectile tracked across the interior of his skull, it would leave a path that would essentially go from back to front and from left to right. And so you're essentially cutting across diagonally across the brain. And you have to think that it would track across both hemispheres, both the left and the right hemispheres of the brain. And so this is an unsurvivable injury that that he sustained. However, you know, his wife, that that's a completely separate set to her injuries because amazingly, and I mean amazingly, she was discovered when they were both discovered, but particularly her when she was discovered, she still had agonal respirations. That means that she still had a heartbeat. She was taking up oxygen. Now, limited, I can only imagine, they were probably very shallow respirations, but they did transport her from the scene and take her into the hospital. And probably what was mentioned earlier about the temp, sometimes, sometimes there's a level of preservation that goes on the colder it is. And maybe for that moment in time, she lived simply because it was a bit cooler outside than normal. I have two questions, Joe. You said Dr. Potter still had agonal respirations. So was that truly, given that she was shot in the head, was she still breathing? 
or is that more of an autonomic response where the body is continuing its normal functions? That's an excellent question. And, you know, you can really only get into that once you get actually into the autopsy to determine the extent of the damage. My suspicion is that in Robin's case, the trauma was so extensive and he was just in an unrecoverable flat spin at that point, you know, and it was probably relatively instantaneous, I would imagine, for him. But for her, interestingly, he was shot on the left side. And if I remember correctly, her gunshot wound was more on the right side of her head. And I don't know that the trajectory was the same. And, you know, people would say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, dependent upon the direction of the travel of the bullet itself, you have to begin at autopsy in particular, you have to begin to try to appreciate what vital areas of the brain. Now, there are certain traumas that your brain, you know, can sustain and they are completely survivable. And there are any number of stories, you know, that are out there. In literature, I think probably famously is this kind of anecdotal story about how the, the idea of a lobotomy came about. And, you know, this this fellow back in the 18, mid-1800s was standing adjacent to a mining area and a big metal bar was sent skyward as a result of an explosion. And when it came down, it actually pierced the frontal area of his brain. And they had to extract this thing, but it only involved his frontal lobes. And... After that, he became very docile. Well, that's a traumatic brain injury back then, and he survived that. You can survive a brain injury, but a lot of it is going to be dependent upon what areas of the brain are penetrated. You begin- that's just exactly what I was going to ask you, Joe. <laughs> yeah. It's like, once again, like you're reading my mind, <laughs> because I was going to ask, does it make a difference? Because you said he was shot behind his ear. So does it make a difference where you're shot? Oh, yeah. Depending upon your survivability. Oh, yeah, most definitely. I love to, you know, give this kind of tactile demonstration to folks in in class. I tell my students to take their index finger, essentially, and find the, you know, find the big knot on the back of their skull and run inferior to that big knot. You know, the anatomist called the occipital protuberance. You go below that and you start to get into that area that does control the autonomic nervous system down toward the brainstem. And when that area is traumatized, you know, you can almost bet your bottom dollar that you're going to shut down everything from heart function to lung function and all those sorts of things. Getting into that kind of primal brain area that controls those things that we don't normally think about having, you know, you don't think about having to breathe, you don't think about your heart beating, you know, and then you have higher functions that are involved in either the lobes kind of higher up and, and forward and that sort of things. And sometimes dependent upon what kind of treatment you get, those events are survivable. And it would appear that the doctor survived for some time out there. Now, precisely when it's, you know, I can't give you an exact time, but she lived long enough that they did what's called running a code. They ran a code on her from the scene where she was extricated from uh, there in the nature area uh, to the local hospital. And of course, it, it was all for naught because she died in the emergency room.
you begin to think about your, you know, you want this place of peace that you can go to and have probably walked around uh, the entire time you've been living in a location. It's probably a place that you have fond memories of. I can't imagine that either one of these two victims could in their wildest, wildest dreams ever imagine that their lives were essentially going to end there in that beautiful nature preserve. Well, that sets me up for a great question. You said their lives are going to end there. We suppose that they were forced from their home at gunpoint because they were shot. How do we know that they were killed on the pathway? When the investigators were processing the scene, one of the things that kind of really stood out to them, other than the fact that you've got people that are very poorly clothed for this time of year, one of the things that really stood out to them was what appeared to be the underlying volume of blood that had pooled beneath the bodies. Uh, first, you know, Robin remained there. And he's kind of the benchmark because his body was not removed from that location. Now, with Beth Potter, she was removed. So anything that had any blood that had issued forth from, from her body was just essentially there as a pool that was without her body to be observed in context with it. But when they began to look at Robin's body, they began to appreciate the blood spatter patterns that were on him and adjacent to the area around his body, in addition to the blood that had pooled. And I don't know that folks really think about this very often, but just in your life, just think about any time you sustain some kind of open head injury. And it can not just be your scalp, but even your nose. If you if you catch a bloody nose or maybe perhaps have sustained some kind of blunt force trauma to the scalp where you've, you know, you've nicked your scalp in some way, you bleed profusely. And one of the reasons is, is that your head is arguably one of the most vascular areas of your body. So when trauma is sustained there, you're going to have a huge volume huge volume of blood that'll issue forth from any kind of injury. And sometimes when you see those, the amount of blood that comes out, you automatically think that it's a very nasty injury. And that's not always the case. It's just that there's so much blood that's constantly circulating through that area that the slightest little nick can turn into something major as far as a, you know, an issue of blood. But in this case, what they surmised was this. They knew because they were not bearing witness to any kind of drag marks. They didn't see any kind of blood staining that had crisscrossed over that pathway leading up to where their bodies were found, that everything relative to blood evidence was contained in that specific area. And when you take that and you look at that, you think of that snapshot in your mind, you, you have to come to the conclusion, well, they were traumatized specifically in that location, that it wasn't something that perhaps happened in their home, that it happened up the path some distance or in the parking lot to get access to the nature area, that it had actually happened there because it's not just the pooling of blood. We think about these dynamic patterns. And when you think about gunshot wounds, we get into this area of velocity, you know, the velocity that that round comes out at the end of that muzzle. And it generates a, a high-velocity pattern when it comes out. And that means that 
the tiniest of droplets that can essentially be created are created because of the high velocity of the round that you're stuck with. And then concurrently, the blood that comes out of that, the droplets are tinier. Say, for instance, if someone were struck with a blunt object, like a baseball bat or a hammer or whatever the case might be, you might think that you're hitting them hard, but you cannot strike an individual and generate the same velocity with a bat or a hammer or, you know, whatever, a lead pipe as you can when that lead core projectile strikes that skull and this explosion occurs and these tiny, tiny little droplets of blood issue forth from there. Given the cooler temperatures, as you pointed out, it was early morning, March, Wisconsin. Would the cooler temperatures affect how much blood pulled out of the body or the texture and the thickness of the blood as it pulled and the shape and the way that it would flow out of the body? Yeah, I suppose that it could. Now, in the short term, obviously, when you're thinking about the immediate event, that immediate traumatic event, it's it, the blood is going to issue forth at the same rate as it would in any other circumstances in you know the first few minutes, okay? Particularly at the initial impact. But I suppose, I suppose that it's within the realm of possibility that things would begin to slow down. You have to keep in mind that, that though it is a liquid, it is a component liquid. It's a liquid that's composed of many parts. And, you know, everybody's handled their own blood at some point in time. And you know that that there is a tackiness to it, that it doesn't feel like water. You know, and again, you know, our ancestors had it right, you know, when they said blood is thicker than water. And there's there's truth in that. And that thickness is actually something that you refer to as viscosity. You hear this many times in association with motor oil. You know, they, they talk about the viscosity of oil, and that goes to the thickness of the substance. And so, yeah, blood has got a, a viscosity that's certainly different than, say, for instance, water. But, you know, you begin to think about it. Does it have a consistency that's, say, comparable to maybe a syrup, like a, a clear corn syrup? Yeah, perhaps. As a matter of fact, you know, there's several recipes out there for making fake blood where they're using a corn syrup in order as an initiator, in order to create those patterns, you know, that we work with in the lab and teach students with and that sort of thing. Cool weather could slow it down to a certain degree, and it certainly, I think, at least, combined with the location of the gunshot wound relative to Dr. Potter's injuries, and maybe relative to the ambient environmental temperature, that contributed to the fact that she survived, certainly survived, longer than Robin. Robin probably died pretty much instantaneously. Also at the scene, there were shell casings found. What did that tell us? Yeah, I was really surprised when I found out what type of ammunition was used. You know, and th this kind of came out in the news uh, following the investigation of the scene and the police working this case. There had been some thought, given some social media history that was out there, that perhaps a Glock firearm was used in this case. And what was what came into focus here was that the ammunition that was found out there is not something that's quite typical. You know, you think about things like nine millimeter, a 40 caliber, 45 caliber, even maybe for some people, 10 millimeter. They actually found SIG Sour 357 rounds, spent casings out there. And you may have heard of a 357 before, you know, for those that 
that are listening, a 357 traditionally has always been associated with the revolver, a very powerful revolver that was popular with police officers, certainly back in the 70s and into the 80s when police were still carrying revolvers. 357 was very common, but that's a bit of ammo that's used for revolvers. However, in this case, they recovered SIG 357 ammunition that is made for a semi-auto. And I'm not saying that it's it's exotic, okay? This is not something that somebody's cooked up in their basement or something that, you know, you had to order and, you know, it would take forever and ever to get in. You can buy it through retailers. It's just that it's it's not your standard fare, you know, when you begin to think about what somebody's weapon and ammo of choice might be. So what does that mean for the investigators? Well, you know, for them, this begins to really narrow down the field because, you know, you begin to think about, well, how many nine millimeter pistols, you know, are out there? Uh, how many forty caliber pistols are out there? Well, there's there's a lot. I mean, they're everywhere. You know, they're all over the place. Our military has carried nine millimeter sidearms forever and ever. So have our police officers. So it's it's not an uncommon round for an investigator when you get a piece of evidence like a three fifty seven Sig. Well, that narrows the focus down, and you can begin to kind of look at things like, well, who may have purchased a three fifty seven, uh, a weapon that's chambered for a three fifty seven, and who may have purchased ammunition that would marry up with that particular weapon, and suddenly your choices become very slim at that point. And that's from an investigative standpoint, that's a home run. Three or four shell casings were found by police nearby, and the individuals, the runners who discovered the body, talk about there being a large amount of blood covering Potter's pajamas, that her breath was faint and her pulse was fragile. And as the person who found them stepped away to be able to call 911 to, to get help, Potter raised her arm. So what's the possibility? Would she have been in and out of consciousness all night long? Or do we think that she probably laid there figuring out how are we going to get help? Wow, what a horrible thought that is. You know, that, that you would consider that, that this poor woman who has been gunned down is immobile. She's incapable of, of moving. I don't, I don't even know that she would have had the ability to even understand at that point that her husband was lying there not too far away from her deceased. You know, you, you start to think about higher brain function at that time. What's your level of awareness, that sort of thing? Yeah. Obviously, she had enough brain activity so that she, as I said earlier, you know, she had these kind of agonal respirations, shallow breathing, that sort of thing, faint heartbeat, and, you know, her respirations. And that means that there's a lot of effort probably being put in relative to her body in order to uptake oxygen. It's really difficult to say if if she had that kind of awareness at that level, you know, being able to think these things through. One of the things that you look for at a scene relative to the deceased, you know, we talked about some of the blood evidence, and I think that one of the other things that comes along, and it's a horrible thing to think about, but it is something that, that we consider. Is there evidence that of their own volition, perhaps, that the victim had moved about in the throes of death, if you will, where they're kind of thrashing about. Sometimes you'll see this where their hands will scrape dirt or their arms will scrape dirt back and forth. Famously, you know, people will claw at the earth 
when they're in excruciating pain or they're trying to become mobile again, if you will, you'll get dirt beneath the fingernails. And it's not always associated with a struggle. It's like a one-on-one person-to-person struggle. Sometimes it's associated with just this will to want to live. And some of those findings can be quite horrific. I've been on scenes before where individuals have kind of clawed at the walls while they're covered in blood after they've been attacked. And this had nothing to do with the attack itself in in the throes of the attack when they were, say, either knived or shot. It had to do with them just trying to survive. And that would be something that the investigators would have to surmise. Now, obviously, in in Robin's case, it appears that he died rather suddenly, you know, that he died there. But it would be very interesting to go back and look at those areas where the doctor lay. And if you have these kind of scrubbed out areas where her arms had moved back and forth, uh, legs maybe thrashing about, and that's sort of a lot of disruption of that kind of the earth beneath her. And that that would take time for that to occur. Was there evidence of that? And again, you know, you say, well, what does that mean for us as investigators? That Does that bear any significance? Yeah, yeah, of course it does. Because when you take a case like this to trial, it shows how brutal this event was and how cold-hearted it was that you would not only take this poor woman out there in her pajamas in the middle of a cold, cold night and then desperately injure her like this and leave her there to suffer all night long. Again, that goes to a very callousness, I think, on the part of the perpetrator. Dr. Beth Potter and Robin Carey, who would want to end their lives? I don't understand that, and I think that was a big question because both of these people, you're talking about giving back to a community, to this place that they lived in. These two were famous locally for helping and having big hearts, and I think that sometimes the people that are the kindest attract some of the most wicked people out there. The search turned to a suspect. Police began to do the reconnoiter, as they normally do, checking close to the family first. They began to check video in and around the home. They began to check cell phone records. So as the search began, Joe, what did we see happening? Most homicides, when they occur, they don't, they don't occur in some kind of vacuum. You know, everybody's afraid of strangers, stranger on stranger crime. They talk about it, and it does happen. Don't get me wrong. It happens every day. But the lion's share of these cases for investigators are going to come back to that small, tiny circle that you've created. And I think probably for the police, you know, when they began to look into this, they want to know who occupies the same space with the two victims. And number one at the top of the list was going to be their daughter who went by the name Miriam. That's her given name, but they called her, everybody called her Mimi. And she's rather young. She's teen. And she was living in their home along with their boyfriend. 
And this young man had been taken in kindly by her parents, allowed to stay there. And this young man who went by the name Kari Sanford was classmates with their daughter. But we have to put this in context, all right? When this case occurred, which was in 2020, we were creeping as a nation up into, you know, those, we were passing through that very scary time in the country where people were social distancing, people were being told to stay apart, where you didn't know anything about this virus, this coronavirus. You, You had no idea how it was going to impact anybody. And Dr. Potter herself had health issues. Now, keep in mind, she's a healthcare provider, so she's going to be hypersensitive to this. She was seeing people in her clinic that she was treating, and I'm sure that many people were coming in that were, you know, presenting with COVID symptomology. And she's on medication that personally put her at risk for not just contracting the virus, but if she did contract it, the weakened immune system, it could really cause her to go downhill fast. And so when you're living in close quarters to somebody, uh, you have a perceived danger of what could be going on around you. And so with her, her and her husband were practicing social distancing within their home. I think they were probably staying away from people as much as they could. But her daughter and her boyfriend, who, again, had been allowed to live in their home, refused to comply. They absolutely refused to comply with the rules of the house. And there was a lot of tension in this home. There was angry fights over it, refusal to comply. And, you know, Dr. Potter was no fool. You know, she knew what kind of risk existed out there. If you're going outside the home, you could bring something back in. And then all of a sudden, you know, she's looking at being deathly ill, perhaps her husband as well. And I guess the rest of their family could be too. But these two would not comply. But going back to this idea of how kind-hearted they were, they actually arranged to have their daughter and her boyfriend live in an Airbnb for which they were going to pay for. They were just kind to a fault. In essence, that may have been part of the problem. Besides the physical evidence that was found at the scene, one of the things that we talk about a lot is the fact that people who tend to be criminal or take part in criminal behavior cannot keep their mouth shut. Sanford began talking with friends. Sanford is quoted as saying, once he found out that one of the victims was at the hospital and still alive, he reportedly said, I shot them. I know I I know I shot them. So how much does hearsay play and how much weight does it have in a court of law? Well, first off, let's look at it from an investigative standpoint, you know, Being out on the street as an investigator, that ain't the court, all right? Because you're always looking for leads, and certain leads that you pick up on would, you know, those beautiful oaken walls that we see, uh, you know, displayed on television and courtrooms, you know, that idea of hearsay is real, and you have to play by those rules. But out on the street, you look for leads. And, you know, as an investigator, when you're part of that community and you've got two of the most upstanding citizens around that are found both shot in the head and left like animals dead 
or four dead, essentially, out in the wilds during this cold early spring, you got a lot of scared people on your hands. And so there's an urgency to this to try to get this solved because you're thinking about, you know, what in the world is going on here? Why would somebody just target people? And then so when you begin to hear these conversations that are popping up, because, you know, you have to keep in mind that it's not just about the investigators going to one individual and questioning them and then they're calling it done. That's not the way it happens. Remember how I talked about that kind of circle, that intimate circle that people have. Everybody that the police can track down within that intimate circle are going to be asked questions. And if somebody has loose lips that has direct knowledge that a crime has been committed, I can guarantee you, even if it comes from a second or third party, those individuals are going to be pressed. They're going to be pressed hard by investigators. You know, and of course, they can invoke their Fifth Amendment rights if they so choose to. And interestingly enough, now that I've mentioned Fifth Amendment rights, their daughter their own very daughter, their precious Mimi, during the course of this, actually invoked her Fifth Amendment rights. And so anytime you hear that when you're conducting an investigation, it's going to make you might not compress that individual any further because they have said, look, I I don't want to say anything else without the presence of an attorney. Okay, that's fine. You know, you allow them to get their attorney and they can talk to their attorney until they're blue in the face and all that sort of thing. You're not going to talk to them directly any longer. But at that point in time, you now are armed with the information that for some reason this person feels very uncomfortable talking about these homicides, the death of her parents. You start pressing on the periphery, and when you do that, other information pops up. That relationship that Kari Sanford had with Mimi, one of the comments that repeatedly has been said by people who knew Kari Sanford classmates is that he was excited and talked about bands of money that reportedly Beth Potter and Robin Curry had. Classmates told investigators that a discussion was overheard between the victim's daughter and Sanford in a class that her parents had, quote, bands of money and that they were rich. The root of all evil here. You know, you begin to think about that. And the fact that I think that one of the things that resonated with me was that witnesses had actually witnessed this young man become excited. You know, and in some of the descriptions I've read, it, it almost seems like he was vibrating, you know, with joy over the fact that his girlfriend and, of course, it, <laughs> their daughter had spoke to him about their wealth. And she described their wealth in terms of bands of cash. And I can only imagine that what she was referring to are stacks of cash, maybe that they had on hand that were wrapped in paper wrappers, you know, much like you get denominational wrappers that you get from from the bank and they had those on hand. Now, there's certainly no evidence, I don't think at least, that has really come out that that this was taken. And we do know that they went back to the scene after this had occurred, you know, when they were removed from their home. Um, and it, it's chilling when you begin to think about it, that this may have been a motivation. And I think the greater part of this is that you've got a young man who, according to everyone around, was involved in all this, you know, kind of civic service around, involved in various groups and organizing basketball games for charity. He had his picture made with 
the city's mayor and, you know, all of the stuff that had kind of come to the surface about him. But then you begin to see kind of the evil that indwelled him. There are screenshots from social media accounts with him holding what appears to be a semi-automatic handgun and pointing it directly at a camera and him looking over the rear sights of the thing and kind of gazing into the camera as you stare. You know, if you're the viewer of this thing, you're staring right down the muzzle of the weapon. So you get an idea that there's something deeper here than what was being presented, you know, to the public and that he had fooled. He had fooled this poor couple that had literally taken him in, had taken him in under their wing, had given him shelter, had given him food, place to live, allowed him to live with their daughter in their own area of the home. And then when times got tough, actually provided a location that they could go to, an Airbnb that they were going to set them up with and then allow them to use their own vehicle to drive about in for a time. Again, it just absolutely breaks the heart. This is such a senseless, senseless killing. Corey Sanford was convicted in the kidnapping and killing of Dr. Beth Potter and her husband, Robin Corey. He was sentenced to mandatory life in prison without the possibility of parole. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is Body Bags. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.